Hey everyone, this is Jay Watts from Merely Human Ministries, and welcome to our special Christmas edition of the Human Things Podcast. All right. Hey, welcome to the Christmas episode. This is my Star Wars Christmas hat. I'm not going to wear it actually during the episode because if number one, it's warm. You can actually, I actually wear this thing to keep warm when it's cold outside during Christmas season as well. Uh, and number two, I can't do it with the headphones. So welcome to the special Christmas podcast of Human Things 2.0. I had some time at the end of the year. We had the ability to go ahead and do this. We didn't want to start season three yet because that would be a commitment to to more episodes. But we wanted to have this opportunity to just do, because there's two Christmas things I want to talk about, and then there's two things unrelated to Christmas that are just related to our mission, Merely Human Ministries, that I want to talk about. So number one, uh, as a Christmas thing, I, it's no secret to anybody who knows me that my appreciation for Charles Dickens grows every year. And every single year during the Christmas season, at least once, I read A Christmas Carol. The last few years, I have read it twice. Let me tell you something about... I've learned recently about Charles Dickens. I actually learned this last year uh, when my youngest, who is, oh, she was, you know, 14 years old. It's not like she's a, you know, a small child or anything, but she just enjoyed me reading A Christmas Carol to her. And I was reading it. She has asked me questions. I said, you want me to just read it aloud while I'm reading it? And she said, yes. So, so I read it aloud. Now, I like reading books aloud, and she liked listening. But one thing I have learned over the last year is that Charles Dickens lends itself well to being read aloud. Not only having read A Christmas Carol aloud to her, but also we were reading A Tale of Two Cities. I read A Tale of Two Cities, reread it. She was reading it for school. Uh, she read it on her own. I read it on my own. But when we both were talking about the book and, and, and she was sorting through different issues and trying to understand everything that she'd read, and she's an incredibly bright young lady, uh, but I would say, let's just read it out loud. And so I would read segments of it out loud to her so that we could hear it. Uh, and again, Dickens just lends itself so well to being read aloud, which is, which I guess shouldn't be remarkable because I know he read aloud that he, he so he probably wrote somewhat with that in mind. Dickens and Hamlet, I mean, Dickens and Hamlet, Dickens and Shakespeare are two of the greatest English language writers who ever existed. And, and it's, the minds of some author or some critics that I've read, they th they say that both of these gentlemen were the greatest English language writers and the greatest producers of characters that have ever existed. Meaning that that you have some writers. Um, let's think about some modern movies and television. Sorkin, Aaron Sorkin. Aaron Sorkin is one of the most successful screenwriters and uh, uh, television producers of his era. But one of the things you can go on YouTube and you can find videos about Sorkinese. And what that means is that ultimately almost every character talks like Aaron Sorkin. So if you like listening to Aaron Sorkin talk, if you like the cadence of Aaron Sorkin's thoughts, if you like the way that he processes things, Aaron Sorkin shows can be really fun to watch. His, his characters speak really quickly. They often monologue. Interestingly enough, they monologue about the same things over and over again on different shows. So if you go, and I would, I would highly encourage you if you're at all interested in Aaron Sorkin to go check out the videos on YouTube of Sorkinese, where they take all of these different characters from different Sorkin productions, TVs and movies, and they have their rants and their monologues and they play them side by side so that you can see that he repeats the same themes over and over again. So for Sorkin, as he projects himself into his writing, a lot of characters end up being being 
sock puppets for Aaron Sorkin's ideas. So what we're seeing when we say that, that Dickens and Shakespeare create great characters is that Dickens and Shakespeare, when they create a separate character, that character is an individual human being. I actually think Dostoevsky is very good at this as well. That character is, in, is unique. Just like every human being that you meet where you're talking to them and they have their own way of talking, their own way of thinking, the way that they think, everything about them, it's a whole human being. It's a character. They are not sock puppets for the author. Every character doesn't exist to, to just share what the authors are. They are people. And if you read their conversations, and that's where I think Dickens becomes very interesting. The same way, by the way, I think it's a travesty that we teach people to read Shakespeare. You shouldn't read Shakespeare. Shakespeare is meant to be performed. They're plays. They're not books. We should watch Shakespeare. You should hear great Shakespearean actors perform Shakespeare. It's an iambic pentameter. It, it's, it's stressed and unstressed syllables that indicate for you what the writer thought was important. Uh, they have things like feminine endings where you have an extra syllable at the ending. And so there's all this stuff that a great uh, dramaturg or somebody who studies Shakespeare would be able to get out and to make sure that the director or producers of plays have incorporated in what they're doing and that the actors are equipped to understand the lines that they're reading. And when you're reading Shakespeare, it's really difficult. But when you see a great actor portraying Shakespeare, it becomes a lot easier. Uh, I think a great example of this, I think, is uh, Kenneth Branagh's movie, Henry V. So many great actors. If you read Kenneth Branagh's early um, autobiography, I think the name of his beginnings, he talks about how he looked around the room and you see people like Brian Blessed and Emma Thompson. And um, I mean, just all of the actors that he had uh, accumulated, like Derek Jacoby. Uh, he said, you know, I looked at all these actors and I realized I had all the talent that I, I could possibly use that I'm the only weak point as the director putting this together. I'm the one that can mess this up. It's not going to be messed up by the actors. These are people that understand what they're doing. So when you hear a great Shakespearean actor sharing Shakespearean verse, performing Shakespearean verse, Shakespeare makes more sense than when you're reading it because they understand the intentions and the purpose of the lines better than a kid reading it who doesn't understand iambic pentameter has no idea or no experience with that language, Victorian English. So, but what I noticed about Dickens when I was reading Dickens to my daughter is that you see some of the same dynamics play out when you hear Shakespeare performed and different actors are embodying different characters. Then you get to appreciate how different each one of these characters really is how fully developed their character is through their dialogue. And Dickens is the same way. If you read Dickens aloud, you, that's when you really get to experience how different every character he adds into his books or uh, into his stories is that all the characters are just, are just different. They're unique. And, but one of the things I want to talk about with Taylor, uh, with uh, particularly with um, Christmas Carol uh, is and, and if you haven't read it in a long time, I cannot recommend more strongly you reading this book. I read it every Christmas, at least once, usually twice. Uh, I've read it so many times now that I just get caught up in little details. I anticipate them. As I turn the page, I get very excited about this description or this, this section of the text. And there's so many aspects of it that just they can't be relayed 
through the performances of it. I said I like it being read aloud. That doesn't mean I like every performance. As a matter of fact, most Christmas Carol performances I do not care for uh, because I think that they are missing the point. When I, and, and also, when I said that earlier, I said Dickens actually read things aloud. At the time that Dickens was writing, you know, if he, he I, there was, he would do read alongs or read, uh, he would read aloud a Christmas Carol to audiences. People would come and hear Dickens read his books and he would read them. He got paid to do this, but he would read them. They didn't have television, they didn't have movies, they didn't have radios. I mean, they didn't have all of that form of entertainment. But what they did have was one of the greatest authors in uh, the history of the English language reading his books aloud. And so, that dynamic was probably in his mind somewhat as he's writing them as well. I don't know. Uh, but but there's an aspect of the language of it that when you're reading it aloud, comes alive with Dickens differently. And But there's one part of it that, that they don't ever put in the movies, and I wanted to share, because I've, and I've actually written a piece about this many years ago when I was with Life Training Institute, and every year I republish it on our website, and so we'll pull it up and we'll do it again. And this one I'm talking about, uh, I think the name of that uh, the blog post that it is, something like uh, Ebenezer Scrooge and the pro-choice Christians, where it's talking about how ungracious a position it is to be pro-choice anyway, uh, in the sense of how we judge the value of life. But there's even more so if you're coming at this from the perspective of image bearer of God and that God created life and that he has his purposes, higher purposes for life than we could probably understand. Uh, and in this particular thing, it never makes it into the movies, a, par a portion of dialogue to where when Scrooge is seeing Tiny Tim and he is watching Cratchit and his family eat, and he sees that Tiny Tim is sick. And he says, Spirit, said Scrooge, with an interest he had never felt before, tell me if Tiny Tim will live. I see a vacant seat, replied the ghost, in the poor chimney corner and a crutch without an owner, carefully preserved. If these shadows remain unaltered by the future, the child will die. No, no, said Scrooge. Oh, no, kind spirit. Say he will be spared. The spirit responds, if these shadows remain unaltered by the future, no other of my race, return the ghost, will find him here. What then? If he be like to die, he had better do it and decrease the surplus population. Scrooge hung his head to hear his own words quoted by the spirit and was overcome with penitence and grief. Now, here's the part that never makes it. All of that makes it into every translation where he asked the question where he's feeling the pain of watching tiny Tim be sick, where he's wondering. And, and then the, 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 uh, the spirits throws back his words from earlier that day into his face about that. He will be like to die and decrease the surplus population. But this is the part that never makes it in that I think is beautiful. Man said the ghost. If man, you be in heart, not adamant, Forbear that wicked cant until you have discovered what the surplus is and where it is. Will you decide what men shall live, what men shall die? It may be that in the sight of heaven, you are more worthless and less fit to live than millions like this poor man's child. Oh God, to hear the insect on the leaf pronouncing on too much life among his hungry brothers in the dust. What a phenomenally beautiful passage where 
after he throws those words back into his face about decreasing the surplus population, he confronts them with the very idea that any human being gets to decide what other human being is surplus. Oh God, to hear the insect on the leaf pronouncing on the too much life among his hungry brothers in the dust. That, that's a powerful pro-life message there in that passage. As in, in penitence and grief being a part of the processing. And that's one of the things I love about the book versus some of the many adaptations you see in film. Oftentimes we see Scrooge breaking slowly over the, you know, he's, he remains ugly and mean, but it's slowly wearing him down. The book is radically different. The moment that this, the ghost of the spirit of Christmas past takes him to his past and he sees his past, he begins to cry immediately as he sees the happiness of youth. And, and he sees these things that he has forgotten and remembered every time he has shown some aspect of his life, his emotional response to it is strong and immediate. And then even then with the ghost of Christmas present, as he sees the Cratchit family for the first time. He's been so cruel to this man, but he sees his family for the first time and he immediately begins to care for them and to want to do better for them. It's it, the power of what he's experiencing in the books is entirely different than you see it as it's relayed. Obviously too, with the narrator and the style, you can get into their head a little bit more and understand the emotions that he's going through at the time as much as you're allowed to see them, but it's just a different power. And there's a lot more reference to Christ. There's a, there's a discussion about Christ and the spirit and this of the season with the ghost of Marley at the beginning that is not in most of the movies. Uh, there's another conversation that doesn't make it into many, although it does make it into the Bob Zemeckis animated version uh, where Scrooge gets angry with the ghost, uh, the spirit of Christmas present uh, because churches closed down uh, all of the surrounding businesses. And so people can't get access to food one day a week. And, and he talks to him about that the people who are responsible for not taking care of the poor, whatever they may say they are, are not of his family. The ghost of Christmas present saying they're not of us. They're not from the spirit that sent me to you, whatever they say they are. Don't you dare put their works on us. Don't attribute the things that they do to us, the spirit of charity, the spirit of Christ, the spirit of God. And there at that moment, as he is reminded, as he's caring about tiny Tim, he's already, he's already caring and he's already repentant and he's already grieving. And yet the ghost of Christmas present reminds him again, you don't know who matters. You don't know who doesn't matter because you're rich, you think you have value beyond the poor people that you're seeing right here. It may be that in the sight of heaven, they're far more valuable than you are. You don't know anything. And yet, earlier that day, you just condemned people to die rather than give to them charitably. There's a great movie called The Man Who Invented Christmas. I think it's a, it's a fun movie because Dan Stevens plays Dickens. And it, it covers somewhat the idea that prior to a Christmas carol, Christmas was seen more in that society as a children's thing. And then they go through that. When he wants to write a Christmas book, the, the editors are, are a bit shocked. Why write a Christmas book? Who cares about Christmas? 
that this sense of charity and wonderment that comes from Christmas was, was often was birthed. His this is a condemnation of the people of London and the people of his society who couldn't rouse themselves to take care of the poor and that were hoarding or keeping their money. And he's condemning that idea through the character of Ebenezer Scrooge meant to be a hammer thrown at the group of people that he sees insensitive to the causes around them and their need to get involved and to help their fellow human being. Uh, it's a, and so the man invented Christmas actually talks about that. It's just a beautiful moment that transforms everything through this. People get inspired that the Christmas season ought to be one of giving of celebration. Scrooge isn't the outlier in the world that Dickens is writing in, he sees everybody as represented more by Scrooge, or at least a, a significant portion of those people in society that have those things that they need. And he's calling all of them to a greater place of charity. And as he does it, that's a powerful message there because there are workhouses and he grew up, had to work in them for a while. And he knows how awful they're. You see them also in places like Oliver Twist, uh, where you see Oliver Twist having to live in a workhouse. So you see these people who live in those, the workhouses, by the way, were so bad. Well, you would go and you would just do like menial labor work all the time in an effort to prove that you were earning the food that they were giving you. So the food was being given to you, quote unquote, out of charitable gifts, but you were required to work, but it was, it was meaningless work. It was abusive work. Uh, and you see this throughout Dickens as he deals with this, perversion of charity through workhouses. And that's why when Dickens earlier in the day is confronted by charitable people looking, seeking charitable gifts, he says, are there no workhouses, right? Aren't, why aren't they going there? And they tell him many people would rather die. An interesting story about the workhouses in addition outside and extra to that text is that uh, John Merrick uh, or Joseph Merrick is actually his name. Joseph Merrick, the elephant man, actually went and worked in a workhouse for a very short amount of time. Once he got older and could no longer count on being taken care of by older, by uh, adults. And so, and he left and, and went and worked in those, the sideshows, which people worked to close down in Europe. It got him sent back home. And you see this dramatically represented the movies differently than it actually was when you read biographies about him and the life that he lived. He chose to work in that community as a sideshow freak overworking in workhouses because he saw those as so dehumanizing. That's how awful they were. Joseph Merrick is I would rather work in one of these sideshows as a freak then work at a workhouse and live under those conditions. I'll never go back to that. So that's what he is writing against at that moment, that idea of how charity ought to be meted out. And when he says, if they would rather die than go to a workhouse, then they'd better get to it and decrease the surplus population. And that's thrown back in his face. And that beautiful moment, that beautiful text. Read, read A Christmas Carol. I, I highly encourage you to read it. I read it every year. I would, I would love, I would love to have somebody good at reading, doing a dramatic reading of a Christmas Carol. Not that I don't love the Alliance's show, but it's not the Chris, it's not a Christmas Carol. They change so much about the story in the Alliance show of a Christmas Carol. They they change so many elements of it to fit whatever the narrative that they want to show. And I love it. I love the Alliance Theater's annual showing of a Christmas Carol, but it's not. Charles Dickens, A Christmas Carol. It's the Alliance Theaters, A Christmas Carol. And that's a different thing. All right, so let's get off of that. Merry Christmas. 
I love a Christmas Carol. I encourage anybody who, who, uh, who has not read it in a long time to pick it up and read it. Okay, let's do two non-Christmas related things before I get back to Christmas things. Uh, number one, I want to talk. I didn't search out the interview so that I get the specifics. I just didn't think it was that important. But I was watching um, interviews that happened. Uh, ben Shapiro went to both Oxford and Cambridge and spoke in front of their student unions and did question. If you go to the Oxford and Cambridge student unions, you have an opportunity to give a brief, just, you know, explanation of, of things about who you are, usually a subject matter topic. And then the students have the opportunity to interact with you. And to the point where Ben Shapiro is standing on one side of this lectern, a student comes up on the other side and they have a moment back and forth in debate fashion. Uh, it's, it's, it's a lovely I love it. It's lovely. If you watch it, you can, and you can pull up a lot of different debates and a lot of different topics that are discussed in both of those venues. But if you go to YouTube, you can pull up Ben Shapiro at Cambridge and Ben Shapiro at Oxford and see them. In one of them, and I can't remember which one of it was, uh, one of the students was confronting Ben Shapiro on his views on gay marriage. Uh, and he says, in your defense of traditional marriage, you argue for the position that marriage is a good that was intended for procreation, that it's intended to raise children in the healthiest environment possible for the good of society. We need children. We need a next generation. In the healthiest environment for kids to grow up is an intact family with a mother and a father. I think statistically you're going to have a hard time getting away from that. I mean, if you go look at the statistics, particularly the influence that fathers have on their children growing up, you realize that an intact family is hugely important for the emotional and spiritual health of the children growing up in that family. And the way they relate to other human beings, men and women is dictated oftentimes by how their parents relate to each other and how they are, um, emulating what they see in their fathers and a healthy relationship with their father. So, so Ben Spiro's argument that he offered up is that the reason that gay marriage is not the same as traditional marriage between a man and a woman is because a traditional marriage between a man and a woman is sacred, not just because of the relationship that God has called them to, but because that relationship bears the fruit of children and the best way for society to get a new generation that will live in a way that's productive to seek the goods for all people is that they grow up emotionally healthy in an intact family. So this guy pushes back and he says, then if that's the case, why then after the raising of the children is done, does marriage continue to have any role to play? So why do they stay married? Why don't they raise the kids and then leave their marriage and dissolve it? If the purpose is the raising of children, then why keep going after the children have been raised? And Ben Shapiro's response, I think, is well, his point is well taken. He says, you're never done raising your kids. Child rearing never ends. And I think that that is a, a reasonable response because it's true. As, as we get older, our role as parents changes or transforms. I'll say this for my adult children who have moved out. They're raised differently I'm rearing them differently now than I am the one who still lives in my house or the one who is not an adult uh, right now and who is Nika, the youngest, their older, her older siblings. I am dealing with them differently than I did when they were younger. I heard one person talk about the idea of 
when we reach this transition point and they're in college and they're adults now, I'm thinking of the welcome mat more. I'm thinking of wanting them to feel welcome to come home. My job as when they were younger was to give them guidance. We talked about that when Jim Trotty was on to give them guidance, to give them structure to their life, to give them guidelines, uh, to help them to see that the, the way to live a good life, but now they're adults. They have to make those decisions on their own. And so rather than trying to continue to rear them as I did when they were younger, I've transformed to a new phase where my, my, my interest is the welcome mat to make sure that my kids know they're always welcome to come home and that we will talk about the things that they're doing, but it won't be the same as when they're younger. I'm not going to lay down the law and say you can or can't do this. I'm going to talk to another adult and try to help them find as best they can a reasonable solution. And so the way that I talk to them all together has changed when it comes to helping them guide, helping them make decisions about their life. I know I think it frustrates them a little bit at first because they're just used to dad sharing every thought that he has about everything that they're doing. Uh, but they realize that as I tell them, look, you're an adult. I'm not going to tell you what you can and can't do. You have to make moral decisions on your own. You have to make emotional decisions on your own and you have to bear the consequences for the decisions that you make. I'm just going to tell you if you ask me what I like or don't like, but you're going to need to ask me more because I'm not going to go around constantly butting into your life and telling you what I approve and disapprove of that just wouldn't be a healthy way for our relationship to progress, but I'm still rearing my children because that's important for the next step. It's important for them to realize that they own their lives. Now that dad will be there to love them and to take care of them. Mom will be there to love them and to take care of them, but taking care of them means something different than it did when they were younger and they're embracing that. They're beautiful adults. I love them. Their, their young adulthood is fun to watch. One of my favorite things that they've done recently is I was out of town and I found out that both of my older children, who both have jobs, they're both working jobs as they go through college, both of them took their mother out, treated her to something, bought her things, used their money now to take their mom out and to show her how much they love her by treating her to a special meal or to buying her a small gift, nothing extravagant, just an opportunity for them to show I'm getting older now. I'm working. I have my own money and I want you to know how much you mean to me by just taking you out and letting you have a lovely night on me. That's, that's just a beautiful moment of transformation where you start to see the adults and them and the appreciation of their mother. It's, it's very meaningful to me. So in that sense, I think, Ben Shapiro is right. We never stop rearing our kids, though it changes. Hopefully we grow in wisdom as they grow and need our wisdom. And that relationship continues on through the course of our life. We're never done rearing our kids. But there's more to it than that. One of them is it's just a basic principle of subsidiarity. If you're not familiar with the term, the principle of subsidiarity, it oftentimes is seen uh, as a Catholic idea. It's not particularly or exclusively a Catholic idea. What it means is that the most local institution is the best for handling any issue or problem that needs to be handled. So what are the most local institutions possible? So the, another principle of subsidiarity, I would say that the, the most local institution is the individual, which means the first way for me to handle any problem that comes up in my life is for me to handle the problem myself. 
That's the first place I should look for help. Can I help myself? I was recently in a situation where I committed to something that I wasn't enjoying. And I was talking to my wife about this is almost over. I've gotten myself into a place that I'm not enjoying this. And she said, what's the, what's the answer? And I said, I work myself out of it, right? I don't walk away. I don't quit. I don't get frustrated. I complete the job. I finish the task I was hired to do. I work my way out of this problem and then I move on and it's out of my life. And that's what I did. So the first institution I look for, for help when things go wrong is me, the individual. Can I do this before I ask somebody else to come in and help? And I think probably in most of our lives we'll be surprised how often the answer to that question is yes, I can actually work my way out of this situation that I've put myself into, but maybe I can't. Maybe it's just beyond me. That does happen. There are situations that are just beyond us as individuals. So the next most local institution to which I turn is my family. That's who I go to next. Can my family help me to fix this mess? Can my family get me out of this crisis? And that's normal. I remember people stressing over a few years ago when they said these, these millennials are graduating from college and they're moving back home with their family. Who cares? If their family doesn't care, if they're not upset about it, and if they're happy with the situation, and if all of them are living together, what is so odd about your son or your daughter who found themselves un, incapable of buying a new home, moving back home with you and saving their money until they can? Because you're their family. It's not unusual for family to, to live together. It's weird that we want our kids to go away so that we can live a life without them. Now, it doesn't mean, now this obviously doesn't mean that I think adult children should move home and be bums and not work. But it, man, I've got an adult child who lives in my house right now. I never see her, right? She comes and goes here and there, but she's got her own life. She's a college student. She's got a boyfriend. She's got jobs. She's got classes. And she's crushing all of that, but I don't see her. She's not constantly underfoot and you know, more than anything, she's helpful. She helps out in a lot of different ways whenever she is home. And even when she's not. So the, the family is the next institution. And so that's the importance of family beyond just birthing kids and getting them till they're 18. Is it in the, in a principle of subsidiarity, which I would say, and Alexis de Tocqueville's book, Democracy in America, talks about basically is looking about how the strong principle of subsidiarity is playing itself out in the American experience early on as he's looking, as he's trying to figure out what's going on in America and why it's different from other countries. And part of the, part of the thing that was happening was there was a, such a powerful sense of local community that began with responsibility of the individual and then the responsibility of the family to take care of the people in their family. And then if you had to go beyond that, the next places you go were places like the church. The church would be the next place that we would go. And then it was, you weren't looking for a strong centralized government or federal group to solve your personal problems. What you were doing was working your way up through local institutions because the people who knew you best were most likely to want to help you. And because without all of the red tape of bureaucracy of going to a larger organization, you could get the help more immediately and the needs that you could have could be met more specifically because everybody involved knows what's happening. So that's what the principle of subsidiarity is. And I think you can see then the importance of the family when you approach life from that position. Family doesn't exist just to raise kids. Although that is 
a hugely important aspect of it. Family also exists to be that local institution to help you through life. A strong family is like having an army on your side. Those people have your back. Those people love you when nobody else does. Even when you've done something stupid and probably deserve all of the bad press you're getting out there, your family should still be there for you. So that's the importance of it is you have some place. And we talked about that with Trotty and he was saying that they don't have that strong foundation built on their family. And one of the things that when we talk, when Jim Trotty was here and we were talking about it, when we were talking about despair and the growth of despair, and he talked about safe, feeling safe within your, with your family. And I mentioned the fact that my kids sleep when they're around me a lot. And I take that as a compliment because it means whatever stress they're dealing with in the world, whatever's going on when they're not with me, whatever they're carrying, whatever burdens they have, when they're with dad, they feel safe and they fall asleep. And that's a beautiful thing. And if I can maintain a home so that they can always come back and feel safe and get rest if they need it. And that's a message I've told every one of my kids and people that I love. You can only fall so far in this world. You can only fail so much. You only have to be afraid of the cost of failure to a certain degree. Because as long as I have a roof over my head, and as long as I have food in my refrigerator and in my pantry, you have a place to go. If you completely crash out in this world and have nowhere else to go, you have a place to go. I'll take you in. You can sleep on my couch. I'll get a futon. You can sleep in my den. I'll have an extra bed. Whatever we need to do, we will get you taken care of. You may be sleeping on air mattresses on the floor with your whole family, but you will be sleeping under a roof with food, with all of the things that you need to take care of you. You can only fail so far. So go and live. And that's what families give you. The ability to have people to turn to to help without having to go to the rest of the community and say, it's help me. I need help. First, your family should be able to do that. And strong families, a society of strong families, that's like a guardian against failure. That's like a protector against bad choices, right? It's a whole group of people that stand there to try to help the people that are closest to them when they need help and not pass that burden on to the rest of society. People who don't know them, don't love them, and don't even understand what's going on in their lives. Family is a powerful, powerful institution for good in our culture. A powerful institution for seeking the good in the lives of the people around us. Family ought to be preserved and protected and respected. And so to say, well, if it's only just about having kids, why don't you just dissolve marriages after the kids were raised means that you have lost sight about what family ought to have been all along. And that's why I think, by the way, this new idea of the family I chose versus the family that I was born into is so dangerous because you're missing the point. You're missing how important true family is. Look, the one message of my life is when things go bad, the only people that I know that I can count on to be there more than anybody else is my family. I know they'll be there because they have been there over and over again. There's been things that we've experienced in this world where everybody else ceased to matter, but my family did. And even with my sisters and my mom uh, and the other people in my family that I don't see as much as I see other, I know that there will be things that happen in our lives 
And there may be nobody else there, but we'll be there always for each other. So that's another important part about it. As an institution, the importance that family plays. It's more than just the idea that we're never done rearing our kids, so family has to maintain in contact. But it's also because uh, they are the most local institution after the individual to help society flourish and to take care of the problems that need to be taken care of in the lives of the individual. So that principle of subsidiarity, that's the answer to why we don't dissolve marriages as soon as the kids are raised, not just because we're never done rearing our kids, but because the world needs families. All right, so next thing. And by the way, as an aside note, and I should have mentioned this earlier, JD, I need you to mention this to your to, to Lisa when she's editing it. If this episode doesn't just have random Christmas things thrown into it here and there, I'm gonna I'm gonna feel like there was a failure done. I mean, I need just an obnoxious amount of Christmas stuff thrown throughout this whole thing. We got this is Christmas. This is a Christmas episode. So let's be Christmassy as we put this thing together through editing. Go crazy. This is my verbal contract with you, Lisa. Go crazy. However much you want, throw Christmas in there. Okay, next part. Next non-Christmas thing that we're going to handle. Uh, and then it'll be all Christmas then for the end up. This is a video that I recently I was doing an article for Christian Research Journal on Planned Parenthood and the history of Planned Parenthood. I have read more about Planned Parenthood than I was ever interested in doing over the last few months. I'm glad that the article is done. I'm glad that I have the information that I have, but I'm ready to be thinking about other things. But here's a video. They have a lot of videos on YouTube, and so I watched a lot of them to get a handle on the kind of things that they want uh, to engage young audiences with. And this is a video called Fast Facts About Abortion. Uh, and so we're going to play the whole video and then we're going to go through it for just a few minutes because I want to discuss some of the fast facts about abortion. Are we hey ready everyone. to play it? I'm Shay from Planned Parenthood. Here are some fast facts about abortion. Abortion is really common. Chances are you know someone who's had an abortion. In the United States, about one in four women will have one by the age of 45. Abortion is extremely safe. Abortion is safer than getting your tonsils out or your wisdom teeth pulled. And abortion doesn't increase your risk of cancer, infertility, mental health issues, or any other health problems. The majority of people who get abortions are already parents. 59% of people who have had abortions have had at least one childbirth experience. Most people in the U.S. think abortion should be legal by a wide margin. 80% of Americans want abortion to remain legal, even in states where politicians pass laws against abortion. For more information, visit PlannedParenthood.org. All right, so fast facts about abortion put out by Planned Parenthood. Let's address those one by one. So let's for the first one, let's get to the one in four women. Play that again for you. Let's start at the beginning and we'll play and then we get to that. Hey everyone, I'm Shay from Planned Parenthood. Hey, Shay. Here's some fast facts about abortion. Thank you. Abortion is really common. Really common. Chances are you know someone who's had an abortion. Sure. In the United States, about one in four women will have one by the age of 45. Stop there. Okay. So this is where right from the outset, I would say the problem with this little fast facts video is they are mixing different data pools. So when I first heard that, I thought that's odd. One in four women is not what I heard most recently, something closer to one in five. Now, I don't want to quibble. I mean, the, the first thing she said is absolutely correct. You probably do know somebody that's had an abortion. I've never been a fan of saying it's very common because I, that's a, I think that that is a term that, that needs some 
parsing out. I don't know what you mean by common. If what you mean is that three out of four women don't get abortions or 75% based on the stats that you're using are not going to get an abortion during the course of their lifetime, then sure, it's very common. Uh, but here's the reason that I was immediately skeptical about hearing it part, hearing it said one in four women or about one in four women will have an abortion by the time they are 45 is because I know that number has been coming down. It, it, it was closer to that number and it goes down. It was like 24% and then down to 22, 20. I think it was the last time I saw it, it was somewhere around 21% of women will get an abortion at some course during their reproductive lifetime or between the ages of 15 and 45, however they want to talk about it. So why was I immediately skeptical? Well, here's why. Because if that's true, then the number went back up. But what would be weird about the number going back up is that the incidence of abortion are going down. The number of abortions that people are getting every, so the population is going up. The number of abortions being performed are going down. And so the idea that the number of women that are getting abortions as far as a percentage goes back up to one in four versus something closer to one in five, which is where it had been trending towards, sounded odd to me. So I looked up their data on that, and they're using data collected sometime between 2008 and 2014. Well, I mean, a lot more people were getting abortions back in 2008 and 2014 than they are today. So in that data poll they're gathering for, I believe the one in four number was probably accurate. But that's old data. Abortions have decreased dramatically since the population's gone up. The number of abortions have gone down. And so that means the difference between the population and the number of abortions is actually increasing. So it's not just decreasing by number. It's also decreasing by a percentage of the population who's actually having abortions, which means that one in four number is just not probably accurate at all based on the data that we have over the last few years. And they ought to, they actually say, when I went and read the document where they pulled this from, then look, this, there's data lagging. This isn't data lagging. You pulled data from 2008 to 2014. Paul, that, that means you were irresponsible where you got your numbers from. That's, that's beyond data lagging. You just went and got favorable numbers and used those. One in four sounds better than one in five. They're both true. It probably still is true that somebody that you know probably got an abortion. But right from the outset, we see the games that they're playing with numbers. Okay, so let's go now to the next one. Abortion is extremely safe. Bring Shay abortion back for a second. Extremely safe. Extremely safe. Abortion is safer than getting your tonsils out or yes. your Okay, stop there. Increase- All right, so abortion is extremely safe. It's safer than tonsillectomy or wisdom teeth extraction. Okay, how did they get that data? First of all, let's look at the obvious problem with that. Safe for whom? Okay. Here's, I'll tell you one thing that doesn't happen when you get your tonsils taken out. There isn't an embryo or fetus killed. I'll tell you something that doesn't happen when you have a tooth extraction. When I had my wisdom teeth removed, they didn't end a human life. All right. I, I got a, you know, a bad wisdom tooth extract and the fact they cracked one of my jaws and my face swelled up and it was not fun, but nobody died. Not a human life was destroyed. At all. So when they say it's extremely safe, well, of course, by its very nature, it destroys life. But other than that, I mean, it's extremely safe. So how do they get this extreme safety of abortion? Well, let's just grant for a second that most women who get abortions don't die. As a matter of fact, dying from abortion is a rare event. 
just like dying from a tonsillectomy is a rare event. Dying from a wisdom tooth extraction is a very rare event. Dying in childbirth is a rare event. These are the things they like to compare it to because it plays off to this idea that it's extremely safe. But here's the problem with those comparisons. There are very strict rules about what you must report with most medical procedures. Those rules don't exist for abortion. Not the same way. California doesn't even report to the CDC as far as the number of abortions that are performed in California. If you look at the CDC for the number of abortions, you're always getting low numbers because states like California opt out of reporting anything to them at all. They just say, look, we're not required by law to tell you, and so we're not going to. In California, the most populous state in the nation and one of the most liberal laws, particularly pertaining to things like abortion in the nation, we can imagine there's probably a lot of them. Statistically speaking, people who live in blue states are more likely to get abortions than people who live in red states. They'll say that's because of the laws, but let's just say that, let's just look at the raw data at this point. So California, the most populous state with liberal abortion laws, has probably got more abortions happening to them than any other state. That's a reasonable inference from the data that we have. And that they're not reporting anything to the CDC because they don't have to. More than that, there's a track record of deceptive statistical practices by the practitioners of abortion. Abortionists are not reliable people. By the way, the data that we're talking about came from abortionists. They're the ones that gathered this data and wrote this article that they're quoting. When, they're, when, they're, when you hear so many people saying this, they're all quoting one particular report, and that, that was gathered by abortionists. So, of course, they have a vested interest in saying Something that says, oh, this is so extremely safe, safer than a tosselectomy, safer than a wisdom tooth extraction. They draw that by saying that I think it's like 0. 0.006 women out of every 1,000 die from an abortion where uh, like one dies from a tonsillectomy out of 1,000. And, you know, they, so that those numbers, they say it was so much safer than that. Well, both of them are extremely rare events. But in one of them, we're talking about areas where you there's a there's incredibly detailed information gathered to track the results and particularly the harms that are done by any particular medical procedure. And in the other area, we're talking about a place where no such laws exist and where the people that gather the evidence have a have motivations to hide it as much as they can. And let's say somebody they said, this is one of the things that was brought up by one of the critics of this way of looking at things. They said, let's say that somebody gets an abortion and then days and days later goes to the hospital because of illnesses related to that abortion and then ultimately die. They didn't die from the abortion. That's not how it's going to be listed on their death certificate. They died of an infection. They died of something else, but they didn't die from the abortion. So the way to gather the data to demonstrate the safety of abortion versus those others, which they are the ones doing, they're the ones saying, well, it's safer than this, it's safer than that. How could you possibly know that? Because there is massive amounts of evidence that this data pool is corrupted. That the way that we're gathering the data, the way that we're trying to estimate it, there's massive amount of evidence that people are hiding information. We know all of this. That's not to say that people are dying of abortions all the time. That's not my point. My point is that this kind of comparison is silly. It's extremely safe, safer than tonsillectomy, safer than wisdom tooth extraction, safer than giving birth. You can't know that. Not the way the data is collected. So stop making silly comparisons. And, and I, I grant for the sake of this discussion that death from abortion is rare. 
But don't try to make it sound like it is just the healthiest, greatest option in the world for people out there because nobody dies from it the same way they are dying from things like tonsillectomy or wisdom tooth extraction. Let's just say that death from abortion is rare the same way it's rare for those other medical treatments, unless, of course, you are a embryo or a fetus, in which case your death is 100% guaranteed through the process of an abortion. So it's safe for home is the first question. And then even there, these comparative safety things are just ridiculous because they have to know that they can't possibly know that that is true. And yet they report it anyway because it's in their interest to do so. Okay, let's move to the next one. Your risk of cancer, infertility, mental health issues, or any other health problems. Any other health problems. Stop there. Abortion does not increase the risk of cancer, infertility, mental health issues, or any other problem. Abortion is all good, people. Except that there's people that say that's not true. And not just random people, medical doctors that say that's not true. I, we just did a podcast, two podcasts ago, we did an episode from Tearing Us Apart, how abortion harms everything and helps nothing. And they have a whole chapter and they're dedicated to how abortion hurts women. And there they go through details about how abortion can contribute to an increased risk of breast cancer. Not just saying we're citing some storm, some particular academic article that can be refuted and the whole thing goes away. They have medical doctors that work in the area of breast cancer research to explain why when you're talking about a particular kind of breast tissue that when you first mature exists, but then transforms through the process of giving birth to become lactating tissue, which is a different kind of tissue. And that that kind of tissue has less risk of breast cancer than the others. And so they said, look, the reason that you have an increased risk, if you have never had a kid and carried it to term and you had to have an abortion and you got that abortion before a particular case is because you've increased the amount of tissue within your breast that is susceptible to cancer. And so there is a risk increase when you get abortions and don't have children. But it's a medical doctor who's in this area of research saying that there are good reasons that there would be a slight increase risk of breast cancer. So for them to say there is no risk of cancer when you have medical doctors who work in this field that say, yeah, actually there is. There's no greater risk of infertility, no mental health issues or any other problems. They dismiss, you know how you get there? You just dismiss everybody who disagrees with you out of hand without contending with their research at all. It doesn't matter. Even let's get beyond research. It doesn't matter how many anecdotal evidence you could have of a conversation with somebody where you say, did you suffer from depression after your abortion? And they say, yes, I did. The other people's response is it's not the abortion that was causing the mental health crisis. It was their religious beliefs that they took into the abortion that ultimately led them to this mental crisis. So anything that they can say that we can tack it onto and say, it wasn't the abortion. It was this, it wasn't the abortion. It was that. We're just going to dismiss out of hand anybody that says differently. But I encourage you to read the book, Tearing Us Apart, and look at that chapter. They're not just making things up. They're sharing different data, different research, different studies, different people that are doing this, that are telling you that there are small, you know, again, it's not a mental health crisis, but there is an increase in risk of things like suicide. There is an increase in risk of things like of other things. That, that statement right there that it does not increase the risk of cancer, infertility, mental health issues, or any other problems just means that they're required to dismiss anybody who says differently. That's the only way you could get to that 100% position. There is, and if that's true, this is the only thing I've ever heard of in the world that has no negative side effects. 
oh my gosh, watch any medical commercial where they have a medicine that they're selling and the list of side effects and the negative things that can possibly happen as a result of you taking that medicine are so huge. Go get any procedure. There's always some risk. And the reason that they have to say that there's some risk involved with this procedure is because something bad happened somewhere to someone, even if it's just a small group of people, even if it seems statistically insignificant, it's there, except apparently with abortion, which is the magical medical procedure that nothing bad ever happens anywhere as a result of this. We fundamentally did something to your body. It was in the middle of a pregnancy cycle and we interrupted that and destroyed the child with a new. And we promise you that you won't have any negative mental side effects. And we promise you that there won't be any biological blowback from this whole thing. There's nothing bad that's going to happen to you as a result of this. What a load of nonsense. It defies common sense. Then there would be some problems some people that struggle with it mentally, some people that face future health issues as a result of having gotten an abortion, that makes sense. Even if it's a statistically small number of people, it just makes sense. It comports with everything that we know about the medical practice. Things go wrong sometimes. That's just the world we live in. What absurd nonsense to go on and say abortion has no, no problems whatsoever. You, you can't possibly believe that's true. And as I said, we have data to refute that. Just even, even if you don't fully trust the people who are telling you that, you have to contend with the things that they're showing you. Even if you don't want to accept the breast cancer link, you cannot possibly say that nobody has ever had mental health issues because of an abortion. You know that's not true. I've talked to them. I've had conversations with people who have. I know it's true. And for them to say, you don't have to worry about that at all, that's just reckless nonsense. Okay, go on. People who get abortions are already parents. 59% of people who have had abortions have had at least one childbirth experience. That's fine. That's Most just a new data point. Think abortion year. should be legal by a wide margin. 80% of Americans want abortion to remain legal, even in states where politicians pass laws against abortion. All right, let's stop, Shay, right there. 80% of Americans want abortion to remain legal. Let's tell you how they got to that statistic. Because that changed. By the way, the emotional relationship that Americans have with abortion is in flux all the time. Polling changes all the time. The news cycle will change polling. Polling was you know, negative on abortion and then the fall of Roe v. Wade and people are feeling better about it in the general public. So you have a highly motivated group of activists on one side who want abortion to be legal all the time. You have a highly motivated group of activists on the other side, like me, who don't want abortion to be legal. And then in the middle, you have the rest of America who has the weirdest emotional relationship with abortion imaginable because they just change their mind and their feelings about it all the time. But let's get to the 80% of Americans want abortion or remain legal. That's it's kind of rounding up. It's usually something like 76 to 77% of, of Americans want abortion or remain legal. But that's a strong way of stating that statistic because that mixes up two groups. The activists that I mentioned, highly motivated pro-choice activists, highly motivated abortion activists who want abortion legal through all nine months, all the time, everywhere, and see it as a fundamental right. That's a smaller percentage. And then the overwhelming majority of people who say they would like abortion to be legal, but with reasonable restrictions. 
the, the greater bulk of that 80% are taken up by those people. The people that say I'm uncomfortable with making it illegal, but it really, the practice of abortion ought to be restricted. And they're probably, I talked to a philosopher, Richard Stith, and he thinks that America would probably land up somewhere, land somewhere like Europe did. It's like Germany or places in England where, where they say for after 12 weeks, you can't get an abortion after 16 weeks, you can't get an abortion, but it's normal for them to say after 12 or 16 weeks, you've had time to get your abortion. If you didn't get it by that time that, that you're just not allowed to get it. And so there's reasonable restrictions, right? Where they say, or reasonable in the sense to the general body politic, not for somebody who believes that the unborn are fully human and ought to be treated with dignity and respect. There's never a reasonable time to kill them. But for the rest of the world that's trying to wrestle with this, who doesn't have those strong feelings, their position is it ought to remain legal, but restricted. That's most people. So to throw out this statistic, 80% of Americans want abortion to remain legal without any kind of nuance or discussion about what that means. It's just disingenuous. They don't really want it to be legal the same way Shay wants it to be legal, assuming that she has the party line at Planned Parenthood. They don't think it should be legal through all nine months. They don't think it should be legal for any reason or no reason at all. They think it should be legal because they're uncomfortable telling other people they can't get abortions, but it ought to be restricted. That's where the most majority of Americans land. And the majority of that 80% is going to be made up by those people. So just dropping that number. And I still think the 80% is high based on normal polling, but not that high. I mean, it really is true that something like 77% throughout the whole tenure of Roe v. Wade would say that they think that Roe v. Wade should be protected. By the way, that same 77% number would be turned around and they would say that they think there ought to be restrictions to abortion, which meant that whoever was in that overlap group just didn't understand what Roe v. Wade said at all. It was, it was less a support that 77% supported the, the principle of Roe v. Wade than it did that they just supported this idea, this general idea that they're uncomfortable telling people they can't have abortions. And so they would like to see the practice restricted but remain legal. That's basically where the overwhelming majority of Americans land. And that's what that 80% hits. It's not the party line of Planned Parenthood that they're endorsing. It's basically they're uncomfortable telling people no. So there's your fast facts from Planned Parenthood. They just are not capable of speaking clearly about this issue uh, because they're activists. And at the end of the day, they're not interested in the truth. They're interested in making sure that you feel comfortable getting abortion. By the way, they're radically self-interested as well. They're the number one single provider for abortions in the United States. Thinking the 2021-2022 annual report, they reported something like 374 thousand abortions that they performed in that last calendar year. I think there was only 970,000 abortions performed reported in the United States, which means like 40 something, like 40% or 41% of abortions in the United States were performed by some Planned Parenthood affiliate, which means by encouraging you of the incredible safety of abortions and your community support in you getting an abortion and the idea that so many people that you know have already gotten abortions and that it's so common and there's never going to be anything wrong that happens to you as a result of getting an abortion. There's selling you abortions. What advertiser doesn't exaggerate the claims of the product that they're selling? They're just like any other advertiser. They're selling you abortion and they're making it sound better than it is because they want you to buy it from them. Merry Christmas. All right. Planned Parenthood makes me feel dirty. Let's get away from that. I got to get back in the Christmas spirit. 
I'm going to get back into that feeling happy. Let's get, let's get away from these people, but there's your fast facts. That just made me mad. I had to say something. All right. So let's get on. Let's get back to Christmas. Okay. What, this is the last thing we're going to do. All right. And I want to talk a little bit about the silent night. Uh, it is well known when I taught a group of uh, just out of college, young professionals, uh, Sunday school class at Johnson Ferry Baptist Church. It was well known in that class because I made it well known that I don't like the wise men being at the nativity scene. Now, it's not just because it's historically inaccurate, which it is. They weren't there on the silent night. But here's why. My favorite um, my favorite Christmas song is Silent Night. Good King Wenceslas is probably close in there as well. But I love Silent Night. Away in a Manger, another one that I love. Okay, so... Here's why, right? I love the Christmas story that we were given, not the Christmas story that we want. The Christmas story apparently that we want is kings marching in with angels singing and giving gifts of gold to baby Jesus as he lies in a stable. <laughs> and so and the whole thing is so ridiculous because it's completely ahistorical. But um, that's the one we want, right? I don't know why we love that, but we do love that. I get why we like the idea of the three kings. Although there's there's three gifts. We're never, we're never told there's three kings or three wise men. We're told there's three gifts, and so we always put three together. Uh, there's no way to know how many of them there were. But they weren't there on the silent night. And I love the silent night. Now, one of the things I've talked about a lot in different talks in context is that we make a mistake when we look at the world around us as it is, and then we project that back into the past as we're trying to understand history. So what I like to think about when I think about the silent night is how different that world was than anything that we've ever experienced for most of us. If you've ever stayed in a national park, like a national park hotel, one of the things that's striking about the national park hotels, like uh, the um, Old Faithful Inn, or Mammoth Springs. We stayed in both of those on our honeymoon with my wife and I. And you go into them and there is no Wi-Fi. There is there are no televisions, no radios, the entertainment. Now you can play board games, uh, cards, things like that, but they it's very intentionally a non-technological area. And what happens when you turn all that stuff off is things get quiet. It's weirdly quiet when you have none of that stuff going on and people are talking and chatting and it's lovely. So when we start to think about the silent night, we have to think about a technology free world. And then again, let's get to Bethlehem. This idea of what, what, what are we talking about? This comes up a lot when you talk about the slaughter of the innocents, because people say, why was there not some massive historical record of what happened at the slaughter of the innocents as a result of the birth of Jesus. I mean, they killed every child, every male child under the age of two in that region. That would have been something that would have been reported. But one of the things I asked was, how big do you think Bethlehem was? That's an interesting question. The biggest estimate I've heard as far as the number of people that lived in Bethlehem at the time of Jesus is 2,000 people. Now, that sounds like a lot, but Johnson Ferry Baptist Church is main sanctuary where I go to church, I think holds over that. If I remember somebody once told me it was like 2,200, if there's max capacity, which means that more people are showing up to the afternoon Christmas service than lived in Bethlehem at that time. And if you're in there, it doesn't look like a huge place. I mean, it's a big church, but it's not like First Baptist Church Woodstock. We're going to have like 7,000 people uh, in the sanctuary. It's, it's a healthy size. And that's the largest size. Most oftentimes I hear people say 1,000. 
which would be half, like half the congregation showing up to the service at Johnson Ferry Baptist Church. And so that's spread out through the whole town. I've heard estimates as small as 300. No matter how you're looking at it, this is a very small village as opposed to a city in the way that we would think about it. And what, what did it look like, right? When we go and we hear that there was no room at the end, which is a translation that I think is weird because there were no holiday inns. It wasn't like you went there and they had motels or these luxury hotels where people would stay. Uh, there was no guest room for them in the places where they were looking to be able to stay, uh, whether it was family or whether, you know, extended family or those people they were looking for. There was a lot of people that were in town for the census and there was just no place to put them when they got there. Uh, but we're, but the way this place worked was, and this is interesting, I think. Uh, so first let's think about um, the Christmas story and some of the things that were told. Uh, one of the things that was, that I'll go to Luke chapter two, verse eight. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared, the angel praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven, on the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. Now I have a picture of, of the fields in Bethlehem. Uh, and, and if we could get that up now, that picture shows you the kind of place that these shepherds were sitting kind of rocky, but there was grass and olive trees that grew in the area. It was enough for the, the flocks to be able to um, be out there grazing at night. Imagine if you've ever been to a place where there is no light pollution. I was in the, the mountains of Indonesia one time on a mission trip, a small village. And I remember sitting out in this field, looking up at the sky and I'd never seen Anything so dark in my life as the sky, nor had I seen anything so beautifully illuminated, man. I mean, I could see every star. I could see the Milky Way galaxy. You could see everything. It was, it was breathtaking the way that the sky looked without the light pollution of modern day, uh, the world, the modern day world that we live in. And so you're out there on one of those hills, like we have pictured in the darkness of night with a brilliant sky ahead of you and nothing but the sound of the animals that you're taking care of around you. Uh, these were shepherds that would oftentimes there's grottos in Bethlehem. So natural grottos, like places where the, the, the areas go into the rock and they would use those to make pools for them to be able to wash their hands and to keep themselves clean or to keep up the cleanliness rights that they needed to be good Jews. And, and there on that hill is the kind of place that we're talking about. This is a very small community. And in the there's another picture I have because of the grottos. And I'd like to pull that up because this is another thing where we talk about Mary and Joseph. And when we say, so Joseph went up to the town of Nazareth and Galilee, and this would going back to, to Galilee, to verse four, to Judea, to Bethlehem, to the town of David, because he belonged to the house in the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to him, her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. So when we talk about them uh, being where he was born, uh, 
Uh, she gave first to her firstborn in a place where there was no in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. There's a picture of a grotto. Hopefully that, that'll be clear enough for you to see. These homes were built adjacent to these grottos on the hills. And the reason they did that was because it wasn't like a rancher. This isn't like Dallas, the old show with J.R. Ewing, where they had this big house and then they had a stable separated from them that they went out that was very far away from the house or the animals were kept. Well, what happened was they'd build a house adjacent to these grottos and the animals were kept in the grotto and then the house was right up there against it. And going back to that village that I stayed overnight in, in Indonesia, these were people who were shepherds. These were people who were raised cattle and but they didn't have a lot they didn't have whole flocks they only had a couple for each family and you know where they kept them in their house you went into their house and there was a kitchen a main room and then off the main room adjacent to the kitchen was the animal room and they had their cows and their sheep in there and you would you could smell them and hear them uh the, that's one of the things i think is so beautiful about away in a manger where they talk about the hearing the lowing and the, the animals and the, you can hear the the sound of the animals around them. Well, I was in the kitchen eating with this family and the animals were in the next room and I could hear them and their noise and the things they were saying and I couldn't help but think about the silent night. And so if you look at that picture of that grotto and you in the right side of the wall, there's these areas cut out of the wall. That's the manger in these grottos in Bethlehem. So it wasn't like this wooden structure with straw all over the place. But in more likely than not, when you're talking about the kind of room that they had for their animals, it was off of their house or main house, adjacent to it, right next to it. We're not talking about a really long way away. You would walk into this grotto where they would keep their animals, and then they would have those things dug out. And the other side of the wall, there's things dug out for lamps to be set in so they can see while they're in there. And on the other side is a place for food to be placed. And so they placed him in a manger, which more likely than not, they placed him in one of those holes in that wall. This is also beautiful in the sense that God's first night on earth is so simple. The Lord of the universe being born incarnate in a man. And who, to whom did he give this first night? Well, Mary and Joseph? The shepherds? This small community in Bethlehem. And I think that's beautiful, man. <laughs> I just think that is beautiful. I think the idea of the shepherds running around and telling everybody about what happened is beautiful. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen them, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. I love that. I love the idea of the shepherds coming and finding them and seeing the baby laying in a manger in the family there and then immediately running out into this small community. And they weren't watching television. They weren't, they weren't playing video games. When the sun went down, a lot of times people just went to sleep. <laughs> I mean, it was, there just wasn't a lot to do. And these crazy shepherds running around town telling everybody about angels and then they came to town and because of what, to see what the angels had told them, and they found this baby laying in a manger. And this is the Messiah come to the people of Israel. What an exciting, beautiful night. The silent night is such a beautiful thing. Ending there with, but Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. 
The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. What I love about that, verse 19, Luke 2, 19. Who could have known that Mary treasured all these things and pondered them in her heart? One person, Mary. She has to be the source of that information. Somebody talked to Mary, and as she relayed that story that night about the first night, about the silent night, about the birth of Jesus, as she relayed the shepherds showing up and the weirdness of the circumstances of the birth and laying him in the manger and people finding him there and running around and telling everybody in town. In this small village, in this dark night, quiet in a way that we probably can't even conceive of quiet in the modern world, we end up with Mary sharing with someone or to Luke himself, which is what is probably the case, that Mary treasured up all these things. I treasured these things and pondered them in her heart. This quiet, weird way that God came into this world. One of my favorite Christmas songs is such a strange way to save the world. It's, it's, sung through the viewpoint of Joseph where he's, he's talking about how weird this all is. But it's one of the things that I find most attractive about Christianity is the humility, the humility of God, the incarnation, and the way that he lived his life. That's why I find the wise men at the birth scene off-putting. Not because I don't value the wise men as part of the story of Jesus, but because the first night was given to the people of Bethlehem, the shepherds, and to Joseph and Mary. It was intentionally a silent, quiet night of birth declared to a small group of people in a small community. It's like he defied the expectation. I remember one time going to a a church service. I won't name the church because I don't want to be ugly. And I love the pastor, so I don't want to sound like I'm being ugly about the pastor. But he was talking about the first story of Christmas. And he talked about it a lot in the terms that I just shared, which obviously spoke to my heart. So as I was sitting at the church, I'm like, yes, yes. Someone who gets it, yes. And he's like, there was nothing glorious in this sense in the, other than just him. He was the glorious thing that night. God alone given in humility to man. He was the thing that night. And I'm, I'm, I'm hearing that pastor. I mean, this is wonderful. And then he, this is, this is where it comes, right? He's like, so I know the wise men weren't there. I know the three Kings weren't there because that's not the Christmas story. He's like, but, they came later, so bring them in. And then all of a sudden, the back door of the church opens <laughs> and this majestic music plays and lights and these people come in all fancy dressed with their gifts. And we have this moment where the kings show up and lay their presence at the foot of baby Jesus. Why? Because at the end of the day, we just need the celebrities there to make it real, I guess. We need the kings. We need the gifts. We need the show. And it, was, it just amazed me. It was like, Pastor, you were so close, right? We were right there. But we got to see 
the pageantry of the entry of the, the wise men and the kings and the music and the lights and the fancy clothes and all of the things and the gold and the frankincense and the myrrh and then everything that goes with them. I love them. But I love the silent light, night more. I love the silent night. I love the silent night. I love the way that Jesus came into this world. The humility, the peace, the quiet. I love the gift to the shepherds who are kind of, I mean, the more you read about them, the more they sound like kind of weird people, right? They were not, they were not the people that society loved the most. They, they spent their time out. They were the animals. They were uh, known to be a little dirtier than normal people. Uh, there was an oddness about them, but God gave the first night to the shepherds, gave it to Joseph, gave it to Mary, gave it to the people of Bethlehem. And I just, think both that that's beautiful and that we ought to preserve that as best we can. I don't besmirch the wise men, but just hold off, hold off, just keep them out of there. And just think of the beauty of these shepherds running from person to person, sharing this story, telling them about the coming of this baby, that everything was exactly as the angels said it would be. This child laying in a manger was the Lord of all and the savior of man. Oh, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. All right, that's all I have. Happy, Merry Christmas. Uh, my favorite Christmas album as we go out is actually odd. I said this, I've never seen somebody so crushingly disappointed with me is when they were telling me, they lo- they're like, we love Pentatonics, Jay. They're like, we love the Pentatonics. They say, what is your favorite Christmas album? And I said, John Denver and the Muppets. It's my favorite Christmas album. As a matter of fact, on my Facebook page, I have posted Rolf the Dog and John Denver singing Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. I think it is by far the best version of that song that has ever been recorded. Rolf the Dog is legit, man. Jim Henson just had a soulful voice on that. And there's something so beautiful about it. I, I encourage you. If you. It's hard to see. It's hard to watch it. But you can get the, pull up the album. On YouTube music, you can pull up John Denver and the Muppets Christmas album. My favorite Christmas album of all time. Beautiful. John Denver's got a beautiful voice. Uh, and the the music that they put together on that, I think, is a great album. Crushingly disappointed that person. They were expecting something so much better, so much more elevated than a bunch of puppets singing with John Denver. But that's what you get because that's the best Christmas album I've ever heard. And I love it. Uh, favorite Christmas movies coming up. I'm excited about that. Uh We've already done Elf. Elf is our launch. We do Elf. And now we do Spirited with Elf. Have you seen Spirited, J.D.? Spirited is on Apple uh, Plus. Do you have Apple Plus? You should watch. It's Will Ferrell and um, Ryan Reynolds. It's a musical spin on A Christmas Carol, but modernized. And so Ryan Reynolds is like the Scrooge character. Here's the thing, man. It's written by the guy who did Greatest Showman. Here, here, here's my, my one like parting shot before we get out on this thing. I watched it and I would have told you it was all right. And then the next day I was humming every song in it all day. And then I went back and watched it again. And now I love it. Right. It was one of those things that I was like, Oh, it was okay. I like the music. All right. And then I just can't stop singing. Even when I was driving here, I'm, I'm, I'm singing, we're bringing back Christmas. I'm, I'm singing one of the songs. Uh, there was another song. I can't remember the other one that I was singing. Oh, it's, Oh my gosh. JD, you have to watch it if for no other reason than good afternoon. It's a song where they talk about, because if you read 
Christmas Carol. Hey, right here, Christmas Carol. If you read a Christmas Carol, Ebenezer Scrooge yells good afternoon at a couple of people. And they take that to, to say that back in the time when Ebenezer Scrooge lived, that good afternoon was, as they call it, a sick burn. And basically it's telling people to F off. And so they have a whole song where they're yelling good afternoon at people meant with that intention. And it is just hysterical. So spirited. I love Elf as my, but Spirited is a great Christmas movie too. I enjoyed Spirited, uh, and blessings for all in this Christmas season. Thank you so much for all the people who have encouraged us over the year. Thank you for all of the people who have given gifts to make all of this possible. Thank you for the participation of everybody who's joined me. Thank you for your prayers. Thank you for your love. I pray for peace and love for you and all of your families through all of this Christmas season and Merry Christmas.